Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. This is Louisa Wilcox, and welcome to the Grizzly Beat. Uh, We have with us here today Casey Anderson, who's a naturalist, a filmmaker, and founder of a grizzly bear's sanctuary in Bozeman, Montana. Casey, you've raised a number of grizzly bears, including Brutus, who's acted in movies. How did you get started in that work, and what's it like for you? Well, I knew, you know, since I was a kid growing up in Montana, I wanted to work with animals, and I really didn't know what that meant. Um, Went off to college, studied wildlife biology, and during the summer months started working, uh, basically (laughs) shoveling poop at captive wildlife facilities. And it it was, you know, it was a job. It got me close to animals. uh, And that was really kind of the the budding thing of how I sort of raising grizzly bears and being around grizzly bears in captivity amongst a lot of other North American predators. And... You know, I was young then, and it was really cool because I was, you know, going out in the wild and having my experiences in the wild that I had with my dad running around Montana and seeing these wild animals. But then, you know, studying them at school, getting into the science, and then getting, like, right up close and getting hands-on and, you know, smelling them and watching them move and and having this kind of... Uh, opportunity to witness them in a different way and, and taking all you know, those three kind of ingredients, it, it was fascinating because there was things I didn't know, you know, and, and there was things that I was learning by being around these animals at close proximity that was translating out into when I would venture back out into the wild. And with grizzly bears particularly, it was just really apparent from the get-go, you know, 18 years old, that there was more to them. You know, you, you can see them thinking. You can they have such distinct individual personalities. Uh, and that, that was something about you know, being around bears and, and raising them that was really fascinating to me because they, they were such characters. And then going up again, going back in the wild and, and, and looking at them a little differently and seeing that the, those exact, you know, that varied amount of characters exists out there amongst the grizzly bears. And... You know, the biggest character of all bears that I've ever encountered is Brutus, a little a bear cub that uh, um, was born at a wildlife park that I was consulting at. Um, unfortunately, a uh, kind of horrible situation. They were overpopulated. Um, people who come to wildlife parks, they want to see little baby bears or they want to see big adult bears, but they don't want to see, like, awkward teenage bears. So since they were kind of reached saturation in their population, they had a policy, which is, is legal to this day with captive animals, that they would euthanize the cubs at the end of the year to keep the population the same. And at that point, mm-hmm. um, I realized I didn't want to be part of that world anymore. And that was really what uh, triggered uh, Montana Grizzly Encounter, the sanctuary that we started, was this little bear, Brutus, um, who was the little cub that he was going to be euthanized. I, there's no way I could let it happen because he just had this is innate charm and charisma that was just bigger and, than anything I've ever seen. And it just it struck me so hard. I knew that there was, you know, a reason why this bear needed to live um, beyond anything 
that I could even think of at the moment. And it, but I knew that it was just a burning thing and passion in my soul that I had to do that. And yeah, I got uh, backers to to fund the beginnings of the sanctuary. And Brutus was our first little bear um, that we rescued. And <laughs> it was crazy, you know. Here I am. I, at that point, I was 26 years old. Wow. And you know, you watch Grizzly Adams, and you, you see all these shows, and you know, but really, you don't think about what it takes to to raise a grizzly bear. Um, to, you know, this little cub didn't have, couldn't be with its mother, so you know, we stepped in as its mother, and you know, a very strong bond forms. I would say that you know, grizzly bears and cubs and their mother have some of the strongest bonds out in the wild world, and that same bond formed with uh, me and a, a gal named Amy who raised him together, and. You know, it's. You know, I, I like to say there's no there's no book. You can't go buy a book about how to raise a grizzly bear. So uh, it's really kind of you just get thrown in there and just try to figure it out. Two animals that are not supposed to be together, grizzly bears and humans, and at some level, um, trying to figure out how they're going to live together. You know, for the rest of their life. So you and Brutus have been through thick and thin together, and he's now a huge bear. Like. 900 pounds or so, what has your relationship with Brutus given you? What has he taught you? He's taught me so much, and he's, he continues to. He's 14. Um, and in those 14 years, you know, he's, he's changed and evolved, and I've got to be part of that. And it, but I think that exactly what you're asking is that he's allowed me to evolve and perceive things such, in such a different way. You know, he's turned me into this massive hypocrite. You know, I mm. I have been now become anti-captive wildlife. You know, I, I don't believe animals should be in captivity. And here I am with a, a grizzly bear that I've raised at 14 in, in a sanctuary who will never be able to go out into the wild. And, you know, since he's, since I've been able to be so close to him, he, he's shown me who he is and who grizzly bears are and who wild animals can be and the value of that. And it's really the fuel that, gener- you know, the, the passion that you know, drives me to, to tell stories, to share this story that he's telling me with the rest of the world. You know, I really believe that animals would have a place out in the wild and uh, would be able to be only in the wild if people knew who they were and realized how much depth and emotion and thought and intelligence and uh, individual personalities, for a lack of a better term, that these animals have. If they could see that value and that depth in these animals, they would make decisions differently than they are now. How would you describe Brutus's personality? Uh, and we were talking about how different they are from each other, and you have other grizzly bears as well. How would you describe Brutus's personality? And he, how, uh, he, maybe how? Yeah, he, yeah. Go ahead. He's just uh, the best way, and it's one I kind of go back to once in a while. He's kind of like this laid-back, like chilled-out surfer. He's like the dude. <laughs> he's like the dude of the grizzly bears. He really is. He is wow. just like he is is tolerance and patience with uh, the, uh, us as a human, uh, how awkward we can be at body language and you know miscommunication in that in that realm. Uh, he's just so tolerant and patient and forgiving. Um, and in that, he also he, he's he does he has this like magnetism about him and charm that is 
it, it's funny, you know, people hear that, you know, for example, we're going to do a, do a TV shoot with him, and some crew from L.A. shows up, and they're like, I don't, you know, they look on the call sheet, and it's like, we're going to be around a 900-pound grizzly bear today, and they think, I don't even want to go to work today, I'm terrified, you know, you, you, haven't you heard what grizzly bears do? I've read it on the headlines the other day, they maul people all the time, and they don't even want to be at work, and yeah, I do a, you know, a safety thing if there's a crew around. And I'm like, you know, British is going to come out. Don't try to touch him. Don't try to hug him. Don't, you know, and they all look at me like I'm nuts. Like, they don't, you know, I'm not going to try to touch him or hug him. I don't even want to be here. And then as soon as he comes out, that wall and that barrier that everybody has of fear, paranoia, I like to call it, that's instilled by media mostly inside of us all, um, I watch him melt it and tear it down and just in his own way. He looks at people huh. in the eyes. He, he has this just, he, just he, the way he carries himself and body language. He has this ease about him, which can be dangerous because I still don't want him to go up and <laughs> pet him and touch him and hug him. But, you know, I see yeah. these same people who are shaking uh, just minutes before go, oh, you're so beautiful, Brutus. Can I, hey, Casey, can I touch him? <laughs> and okay. I'm like, no. But the, the, the value of just that in him and the way he can – pull that wall down, I think is really important in kind of our collaborative, collaborative effort to change people's minds because they, you know, they do, they could be, they can look at him and see that he's much more than the same animal they read about two days ago on the headlines. Right. Does he have that effect on other bears? Um, that when I, I read that you had a cub from Alaska, an orphan cub, and she was pretty freaked out when she arrived. And does he have kind of the calming effect when, on other bears that come in? Yeah, absolutely. He really does. He, in fact, when we introduced the little cub just a few months ago, actually, you know, she's quite small, and we we're always concerned just about just the size of the two bears coming together. Just don't want her to get hurt. And he, he instantaneously recognized her anxiety and how you know he basically reacted to that by. You know, not walking at her, but kind of stepping back and sitting down and kind of going into a submissive kind of a, a posture and even kind of not making eye contact and looking to the side and kind of playing with the grass to, to bring her in closer, to ease her anxiety. Uh, and eventually that's exactly what happened. You know, they were within an hour rolling around in the grass playing. Um, and he's one of the only bears that I've, I've ever watched do that, uh, both in the wild and captivity. You will see it once in a while in the wild, where during the mating season, where you'll see these big these big males just patient, patient, patiently following around these females, and they'll do this a lot of the same thing. They'll kind of lay there and play with their toes and act like cubs again, just to get her close enough so right. there could be cubs the next season. <laughs> right, right. Has he? ever kind of surprised you? I mean, you've obviously had a very, very close relationship with him his whole life where he's read a situation or read your mood and uh, surprised you with his level understanding or or his reaction to a situation? Yeah, I mean, several ways. And I could probably go on and on about that, but, you know, just intelligent-wise and, like, watching them kind of connect the dots and, and dots that seem to be, like, we would think we're too far apart for a bear to figure out. Um, mm. In fact, at the sanctuary, we have this pond um, that's fed by a waterfall, and it's just this, you know, the water circulates, goes down in the pond, down through a drain, into this pump, and then the pump pumps it back up over the waterfall. Well, if the flow of water stops, the pump will pump the tank empty, and then the float will 
the float in the pump will tur- turn the pump off. So he, he's figured out where if he goes over and puts his paws on the drain, he can turn the waterfall off if he holds it there long enough. And as soon as he does that, any other bear that's in the sanctuary becomes curious about the spot behind the waterfall that really never, they've really never had access to, <laughs> mm. and they'll go over and sniff around. Well, he will purposely wait for them to go over there <laughs> and take his paws off. And you see this sense of humor, and it was the only way I could describe it. Maybe that's too much, but he is at least creating this excitement, this body language in this other bear that is stimulating to him, and he realizes how he you know, connects the dots to do so. And when you see a, an animal doing that and you know, purposely, it's mind-blowing. And you think about, and this is just something that's so obvious to me, but there's got to be all sorts of these intricacies happening all the time within him, within the other bear's sanctuary, and with every bear in the world. And, uh, again, just without seeing that, uh, you would never think it would happen. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I was wondering if you had situations where maybe you or one of your coworkers wasn't feeling well one day or something sort of bad happened or somebody in your family was sick or died and and where the bear is picking up on that and uh, is is responding to you in some way. Yeah, you know, so... That's definitely it happens a lot with Brutus, and in kind of in that same kind of accepting patient, the dude kind of personality that he has, he is you know has always been around people his entire life, and he has learned to, to read human body language and you know intonation of the, you know, the voice, and, and and as much as we have learned to read his body language and what he's trying to tell us, and, and at a very intricate level, and there's been several times, and I can think of a couple times where I've been deeply upset. And he obviously recognizes it. And you could see this, like, uh, relaxation in his face and uh, the way he holds and mo- holds himself and moves. Um, he, yeah, he becomes almost somber. It, 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 he feels that emotion or that whatever I'm projecting to him through body language. Um, just the vibe. You know, I hate, you know, when I use the word vibe, it sounds a little out there. But there's something. Whatever it is, mm-hmm. he can see it and yeah. feel it. And, uh, yeah, cause he's so in tune. I mean, animals are so in tune to that. That's how they survive. And, yeah. and he, he, yeah, he recognizes it, and particularly with people he cares about. And when I say care, again, it, it just if you want to look at it in, <laughs> as black and white as possible, people that he's paying attention to all the time, and he's looking at and reading their body language, he changes his mood accordingly. And, you know, when we do work with him, we always have that in mind. You know, if I'm not, if I'm in a bad mood, I'm grumpy, I just refuse to work with him. I don't want to translate right. that into him somehow. And, in fact, right. yeah, usually if I'm grumpy, he doesn't want to be anywhere near me, as right. most of my friends don't. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Have you or any of your coworkers had any regrettable moments where the bear might have been in a bad mood or maybe wasn't feeling well and hurt somebody? Well, fortunately, nobody's been hurt by any of the bears at our sanctuary. Uh, I've definitely been around other other situations, other places. Um, you know, I think one of the greatest you know, kind of rules that we have is that the bears are the boss, and, and we don't put them in situations that they're uncomfortable. We don't make a living by making the bears do anything. 
Um, and we don't want to. You know, right. any time that I feel like I've crossed that line where I've, I've created a situation where maybe Bruce would have not done it that way on his own, I, it makes me feel awful. So we really, really try to assess the bear's needs and wants. And mm-hmm. if, you know, I don't care if a Hollywood producer wants to, you know, spend a half a million dollars and do some big movie. If Bruce doesn't feel like doing something, we're not doing it. That's just right. it. That's and we just don't. We won't cross that line. It's not worth it. Even right. if we make the mistake or somebody else makes the mistake, Brutus is going to pay the price for that. And then that's, you know, I have this responsibility to make sure that never happens. And I think, you know, one of the one of the biggest parts of that responsibility is as I've changed my perception about bears, and and I find it so important to to pass that on to everybody. If I then go get hurt by a bear. Or you know, or yeah. you read about me in the headlines down the line. Everything I say goes away. Everything is completely true. not true anymore. Yeah. So it's I have to make sure that doesn't happen. And part of respecting Brutus, all the bears in the sanctuary and the bears in the wild, is to make sure that you understand them and and respect them. Yeah. So your sanctuary grizzly encounter uh, is a lot about educational about education. So what do you hope people will take away with from meeting your bears and hearing your message? Well, so, you know, the location is great because anybody who's driving by the sanctuary or lives around the sanctuary are traveling through or living in grizzly bear country. And the misconceptions about grizzly bears are, you know, they're everywhere. What people perceive these animals as. Uh, most of our bears are bears that come from pretty horrible situations, you know, whether they've lived in, like, circus roll cages for 18 years or uh, were orphaned and starving to death up a tree in Alaska. And we're really proud of when you come in there, you, what you will see is happy bears playing and uh, enjoying their, their life that they have, their limited life that they have in captivity. And, you know, we have a, an extensive educational program, and anything you want to know about a grizzly bear is there. But mostly, I think, is it, it's just getting people in there to see these animals up close and to see them interact and see their happiness and see some elements of this intelligence and emotion that I'm touching on and changing their perception as long, you know, simultaneously teaching them some facts and what they can do when they're out in grizzly country. And I think it is two, twofold, is that, you know, arming them with knowledge about these animals and understanding from even a scientific level, but also changing their perception about who these animals are that they share the landscape with. So on that note, um, you read a lot about controlling grizzly bears and managing grizzly bears, and the government's approach is so often to radio collar them and follow them around and taking this uh, idea of management and control through research. And you've been critical of some of that work, uh, making sweeping generalizations about all grizzly bears gained from radio collar work. Can you explain some of your concerns? Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I definitely see the value in radio collaring and, and learning about the movements of bears in a general way. But I think we, in the scientific world, are, we need to go a little further, and it's, it seems a little old, old school at this point. <laughs> um, because, you know, what I, I have learned and what I continue to say now is just that 
each of these individual bears make their own individual choices, and they're all, you know, a, a recipe of these ingredients of their own experiences through their life. And to generalize these them as the grizzly bear, well, a grizzly bear is going to do this because, you know, we have data over here that they've done that by, you know, GPS locations and lines on a map. I feel like that's, you know, that's just like so shallow when you're really dealing with an animal is making such individual choices for itself. Sure, there are trends. Sure, there's habits that bears may tend to go to one way or the other. But what I'm finding more and more as I encounter these bears, whether they're, again, in captivity or out in the wild, is that there's much more to it, to them. And, you know, they are evolving and then trying to adapt constantly to what we are changing in their life. And, you know, we've really pushed them to their edge and in, of adaptation. And, it, you know, it, again, I think it's in order to really, ad, for us to adapt, because now it's our turn to allow these, these animals to coexist with us, we're going to have to take science deeper. We're going to have to look at who they are, you know. And it's something that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be working on coming up in the next years, you know, doing some relatedness stuff, looking who's related to who as far as bears are and realizing that even in the Yellowstone ecosystem, there's these little different pocket cultures of bears that, you know, make food choices completely different than they do on the other side of the, of the ecosystem. Um, have much more tolerance to people and livestock and each other than other bears might on the other side of the ecosystem. And this is, is something that's not only genetic, but something that's taught from mother to cub, um, yeah, it's just it's this complicated social structure. And here's an animal that we never thought had it was social at all. <laughs> and it, it's uh, so I think science needs to go a little further than that. We're ready to. We have the ability to. Uh, I feel like science is opening up their heart and their mind toward, towards that a bit more. So it's time to go there. Well, it also calls for research to return to the field instead of sitting behind computers or, or radio collar you know, work, um, and observe, I mean, really see what's going on, uh, and really watch these family groups, um, dig yampa or, you know, moths or whatever bears are doing, that calls for different kind of skills, maybe old school skills that, uh, are being left behind as people are drawn to more high tech research. Uh, you're, you're right. And I think even taking, you know, I, I often kind of pride myself in that because I was raised as with my dad, who's a tracker, you know, we would go out into the wild and track and follow things and learn about the ecosystem. And if we were looking for a mountain lion, we'd listen to the magpies, and that's how we would find them. You know, we we would go to the most primitive, you know, First Nations kind of tracking style. And what I love, you know, now is that I can take that that skill set, and I can take even some some better technology than most scientists have, unfortunately, just because. The TV guy always gets to get all the toys and play with them. It's just the way the world goes. And I can take that technology, and I can take my primitive skills out into the wild and really kind of get the best of both worlds. In fact, I had a biologist guy tell me um, up in Alaska, and he's worked with bears for almost 40 years, and I showed him a clip on a carcass one night where 13 different grizzly bears came to this carcass, and there was all this social interaction. And... um, we filmed it from a blind and uh, had some camera traps. And he said, I, I, you've captured more in one night than I've seen in all 40 years as far as, wow. as, far as social interaction and grizzly bears go. 
And a, a really powerful thing for him to say because it just shows that, yes, it is time to kind of revisit everything. I mean, the world's changed so much. Uh, technology changed so much. But let's get back, like you said, let's get our boots on the ground. Let's get muddy again. Let's get out there. Let's learn who these animals are. Guess what? In 40 years, those bears have changed. It's time to go learn a little bit more the old school way, get back out there and see who's out there again. Yeah, so along those lines, speaking of television, you are a producer on Expedition Wild and America the Wild for National Geographic. Maybe you can talk about these shows and what your experience with them is like. Well, fortunately, you know, I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world to have a job to go really run around and just tell you know, stories about animals and wildlife and to get it on, on boots on the ground. And, you know, for me as a producer, every time we, you know, we're planning to go to an area, uh, I think one of the biggest things we want to do is, you know, how can we tell this story differently than it's been told before? Um, we want to make it visually beautiful, but we also want to make sure there's a story that's compelling and maybe even more important, a story that's not just preaching to the choir, people who already care about the wild. You know, there's plenty of people who, don't care or don't know or they're just ignorant to the wild, how can we create something that they're going to stop and watch and learn something and become immersed into that, that wild story? And, yeah, and that's really what, really what we're doing when we go out there is just trying to make wild cool. And that sounds so simple, but it really is the best way I can say it. Make the wild cool again. To Make it mainstream. Make it, you know, popular. You know, it's... Yeah, you know, I, I always use this, but it's like, you know, Wolverines are cooler than Wolverine, um, Marvel comics, and and they're real. Right. You know, and it's, it's, I think it's important to be able to go out there and show that there are these wild, real superheroes running around everywhere. And so the people who don't care will listen. Uh, you know, of course, I love to make beautiful stuff that, you know, Grandpa would love to watch, too. But I think there's a, a, a cocktail there that is important. You know, we're not making TV for ourselves. We're making TV to change uh, perception of the wild world, um, to make, you know, at least give it an accurate, you know, representation of that. Um, yeah, and I think you have to because we're, we're competing with so many different things now. I mean, just the apps and video games and million-dollar budget movies. You know, it's really difficult to compete with that in that visual space. But, you know, we could all just throw our hands up in the air and say, let's not try, or we can try, and we've chose the latter. Right. So you've also been on the Oprah Winfrey Show and Conan O'Brien and Good Morning America. I'm just curious, did you find that any of your interviewers there got you to reveal something about yourself that maybe surprised you? Oh, they always do. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, Oprah's one of the greatest interviewers of all time. Again, she's got that uh, almost like Brutus's mentality, you know, like a body language. It doesn't take long for being around her where you just want to tell her you're still your soul to her. Um, that's why she's Oprah. Um, you know, I guess i got to go back on I mean, something that surprised me, I surprises people a lot is, and I was that kid that would take a zero when it came to giving a speech or getting in front of the class because I was such a shy kid. And I, I, I didn't even walk across the stage for graduation because I didn't want to be in front of people. And it, it, this, 
this like gift that Brutus gave me, this you know this new look into the wild world, this gift that I feel like I have to tell the world, has in, uh, empowered me to stand, sit next to Oprah and Conan, and talk and tell that story, and not be shy and not be afraid. Um, not be that kid anymore, to you know, overcome that and to tell that story. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I've had the opportunity to, to be on these big platforms, on this, these tall soapboxes of these shows. And, again, every time I go into that, I, I do always get nervous, and I always have to overcome that, that fear. And because I know that it's a huge responsibility, and I have all these eyes and all these ears, that I need to tell that story to. Um, and, you know, and the greatest interviewers out there, like Oprah, will allow me to tell that story, to dig deeper into the emotions, you know, to, to allow me to be vulnerable and, you know, own being a hypocrite and realizing that I'm, I'm you know, I'm, it, what I learned in the last 20 years is a lot, and it's probably only the tip of the iceberg, and it's to keep my mind open and to keep changing. And I might go back on her show again and tell her, say something completely different in five more years. And that's okay, because I think that's, it's important to stay, you know, flexible and open-hearted towards us, to, to, to the wild world. In a TED Talk I watched you give, you talked about the possibilities of new discoveries on the inside of nature. Can you explain what you meant there? Yeah, I... I you know, just kind of going back to what we were talking about, these generalizations about animals, you know, white sharks and grizzly bears. And when you hear about them, it is because they they made the headlines and they've done something wrong. Or, you know, Hollywood movies have sensationalized and turned them into these man-eating beasts. And, you know, that's kind of like this, the outside, fake, not real perception of these animals. And as you, as you dig deeper and... The comparative, there's the comparison that I like to use, and it's like I hate to anthropomorphize things because, you know, they don't feel the same way as humans do exactly. But, you know, I can say, like, you know, grizzly bears have personalities, this, that, and the other, and, I, and someone will look me right in the eye and say, what are you, nuts, you know? And these are the same people who have dogs at home. And we could, they could talk about their dogs that they've had all their life over and over again and say, oh, yeah. You know, Blackie was a real nice lab that it would lay on the couch. He was lazy, and he'd let the cat jump on him. And then they had, you know, Cujo, who was a mean pit bull that was biting the mailman in the butt last week. And and they they recognize these individual personalities and characteristics in each of their their uh, dogs. And you know, I, I now I start calling it canine morphism, which I think I've made that word up. But I, it's a way that people can relate to animals. It's an animal that we can relate to quite well because we've had them in our families all of our lives. Many of us have. And dogs, <laughs> you know, they're a lot less intelligent than a bear. Um, in fact, I've seen a lot less of a, emotional levels that they can have than a bear's. And, um, you know, when, so I think when you say, hey, but bears are like dogs that in many ways, it's, people will say, oh, well, then if you start looking at the landscape, and you're looking at grizzly bears, and you're making decisions about grizzly bears, that broad stroke of the brush, you realize you're not. And this is like, say you're making a decision about dogs. You realize they're all different, and you're going to have to make different decisions about different dogs. Um, and a lot of that is on the inside, you know? And 
it is it is that um, you know it is as the more we open up our minds, I think that we will, we will see that, and the more we allow to realize that these animals are complex. As long as we will open our minds and hearts to that, I think that we'll see that. You know, here's animals that can't really communicate in the, the way that is simple. But I think that there's ways that they can if we would look into it and try to. And it's from, and it is, it's from the inside. And the more that we dig into the inside of these animals and find the depths of, of who they are, I think that will change the way we make our decisions when we are talking about conservation and coexistence and how we're going to move forward. And I really do think it's going to change the way. And I, I do at some level believe that it's the next big revolution. I think that there's going to be a time where we're going to look back on today and we're going to reread the headlines about trophy hunting grizzly bears in Yellowstone. And it's going to sound like it's going to sound so. Someone's going to go, "What? They, what they did? What back then?" You know, it's going to sound so weird. Um, right. And it, and then I think right now there's enough evidence out there that it is weird. It's time to change. You know, I again back into the hypocr- hypocrisy of me. You know, I right. am a fifth generation Montanan cattle ranching family. Uh, grew up hunting in deer and elk. Still love to eat them. You know, where do you draw the line? You know, and I think that, you know, trophy hunting and, you know, it's why. And uh, I think a lot of people are really changing their mind about that. You know, I, I, (laughs) here I go on a tangent, but, you know, it's, let's look at another animal, like the bald eagle, right? The bald eagle on the endangered species list at one point, massive recovery. Now you see them everywhere, right? And if, if. The headlines right now read, you know, bald eagle meat, lean and mean, the new turkey at Thanksgiving. And <laughs> guys are going out shooting bald eagles. And trust me, I mean, talk about an animal that actually is probably borderline overpopulated. <laughs> uh, you know, or now, I mean, I, mean, I don't even, can't even say that, but, you know, they're, they're doing well. And right. you said that, and it's like the symbol of freedom in America. What? The same people who are would buy the first grizzly bear tag, would say, I would never shoot a bald eagle. What are, that's, that's crazy. And yeah. guess what? <laughs> it, it's crazy. It's crazy to shoot a bear. It's crazy to shoot a bald eagle. You know, it's, it's, uh, it is. <laughs> it, it, there's, and when you look at a bear, to me, it's just like, you know, shooting an orca and shooting the, a mountain gorilla. You know, the same people would never do that. And why? Because there's some reason why they believe that there's more to them. But if they got to know the grizzly bear and realize that, you know, there's that exact same thing is going on with these, these animals, I think that they, would, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't shoot their dog. They'd freak out about that. And I think that they have to change their perception about this animal. And it's not a out-there, foo-foo-y, weird, what's-this-guy-smoking kind of a thing. It's real. It's real science. And mm-hmm. that's it. And, that's, and I think that we have to make sure that the world knows that. So you think that we're going to come to a point that we are in a period of transition. We're evolving away from any interest in trophy hunting of grizzly bears now. It used to be cool. It's not cool anymore. You know, being a big, tough ego guy with a bearskin rug on the, on, 
on the wall and telling some embellished story is not cool anymore. You know, being able to go out there and see a bear and, and understand it and take a picture and turn and walk away and let that bear share the landscape and live another day, that's, that's cool. And um, we got to make sure that's cool for everybody. And, we, you know, I, I do believe that that old school um, mindset is going extinct. Um, and that's okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I do. Right. I, 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 again, I, have, I know plenty of hunters. I hunt myself and, you know, and for different reasons. And I think that things are really changing in that way. And I, and I even think that that's changing. And that's okay, too. And, I'm op- and my mind's open, and I'm listening to, listen to everybody, and, and I am evolving, and I may be a vegetarian next time I talk to you on the phone. Um, but I think it, it's, it, yeah, it's okay for this change to happen. And you don't have to give up, you know, everything. You just got to open your mind up and, and listen. Just listen. Because I think that the world is ready for it. Well, thank you, Casey. So you're listening to The Grizzly Beat, and we're talking with naturalist and filmmaker Casey Anderson and founder of Grizzly Bear Sanctuary, Grizzly Encounter. Thank you very much.